Hi everyone, and welcome to the May edition of the DistilleryTours.scot podcast, giving you that wee bit of extra insight from Scotland's whisky distilleries. My name's Nikki Simpson, and in this episode, I spoke to Gordon Dallas, Whisky Experiential Ambassador at the Glengoyne Distillery. Gordon tells us about the famous teapot dram, how he took one of his tours to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, his love of history and how he's really brought Glengoynes to life, including how alcohol pushed the evolution of the human species. This episode was recorded in April 2021, when the world had been social distancing for just over a year to stop the spread of COVID-19. If you'd like to find out more about the Glengoyne Distillery and its whisky, check out distillerytours.scot and click on the Book Now button on the Glengoyne listing. We hope you enjoy it. So today I'm here with Gordon Dallas, Whiskey Experiential Ambassador at Glengoyne Distillery. Hi, Gordon. Oh, good afternoon, Nikki. How are you doing? Oh, doing very well, actually. It's just day one back from my Easter holidays, and I can't think of anything better to sit down and have a good chat about Glengoyne and avoid the real work for another day. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad I'm your tool for procrastination. That's good. Lovely. Yes. Um, uh, Whiskey Experiential Ambassador, that's an unusual title. So tell us a bit about yourself then and and, uh, and how you came to this point in your career. Yes, uh, well, I've got a kind of background in media, basically. And I joined the whiskey industry as a, effectively a tour guide in 2015. And very early on, um, going through the training, I, I realised that there was a huge story about not just Glengoyne, but about Scotch whisky in general. And I could maybe bring some of my media background and experience to whisky, not just its stories and its tastings, but just the general world of whisky. And, and that's really where the, it led me to become an experiential ambassador, which is storytelling, immersive, doing something with a smile, a smile on your face, just doing things a little bit differently. But yeah, it's really like the media background influencing the, the world of whisky. And how did you come to work for the distillery as the Whiskey Experiential Ambassador then? Yeah, well, early on in my career as a tour guide, taking people around Glengoyne, which I have to say I love doing, um, I would say within two weeks of reading the manual, I, I realised that the wonderful historical tradition, so I started reading books upon books upon books and if you're I'm sitting talking to you Nikki in my office at the bottom of the garden and behind me is loads of whiskey books so I started reading whiskey books and started to write a history of whiskey uh, and distilled spirits but through my eyes and my lenses and sort of my interpretation of it which had a little bit of humour and a bit of comedy and I started trying it out on the paying guests <laughs> that came round the distillery and I'll just maybe drop a line in, wouldn't go too much, but just drop a line in here, a line in there. I started to formulate a historical uh, show, which I then took on the road. I, I asked our bosses at Ian McLeod Distillers if I would be allowed to perform my history show of whiskey going round one or two clubs and bars and they said yes. So that led to a fringe show that they decided to commission me to be um, to do a Edinburgh Festival show awesome. in, in two, 2018. And that was to look at the Victorian era of Glengoyne and try and bring that to life and do that as a story and, 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 and as a tasting as well and do it at the Fringe. So still as a tour guide, I put the show together and we did two shows a day for three weeks at Edinburgh. Up at, If you know Edinburgh, uh, and it's listening, it's right at the castle, the wonderful Cannonball restaurant downstairs in the basement bar. And that show, well, had Leonard Russell, who's the 
owner and managing director of, of Ian McLeod Distillers came along to see it and, and that led to the current position I'm in as the experiential ambassador. That's, um, uh, that's really yeah. unusual, Gordon. Um, I've never spoken to anybody who's decided to do a fringe show off the back of one of their tours. I mean, you said you had a media background. Is, it, is there a bit of theatre in there as well then? Oh, oh, oh Lovey, how, how did you guess, Lovey? Um, absolutely, <laughs> yes. I didn't quite leave. I was at Edinburgh University for four years and um, I didn't quite join the circus, but not so much different from that. I decided to join a comedy group, and uh, the, which became a double act. So for the best part of the 1990s, I toured the UK and parts of France as a comedy double act, doing silly humour and comedy, and then the BBC spotted us and I started writing for the BBC and started writing. You might be too old for this, Nicky, but I wrote for children's television when it was still in BBC One in the mornings. Oh, awesome. I don't, really I don't remember all that. <laughs> you do remember children's TV, yes. <laughs> so it was lovely because it was a network show. So you're writing for the UK and, and that was very well paid. So, And then from, from there... Um, was that the days of you know, going live and thing like, things like it that? Was, it was, just after going live. The, there was one called Fully Booked and I just joined the end of that programme and I, I actually wrote for one called FBI, which mm. featured Vernon Kay and oh, yeah, I remember Vernon. Uh, Keith yeah. Duffy from Boyzone. <laughs> and they had various people from EastEnders would turn up and Matthew Kelly, Graham Norton. So yeah, I ended up writing the little sketches and the little fillers for the celebrity guests that popped in. And in those days, everyone popped into children's television. So I've got a lovely CV that says I wrote for Graham Norton, I wrote for Matthew Kelly, I wrote for Vernon Keith Duffy, I wrote for the boys on doing a sketch and the EastEnders. So so that was a good grounding to, to, to be a bit creative and a bit fun uh, and anarchic, because that's what kids' television's about. So that, you know, led me so far. And then I had a radio programme on an independent radio station. Because um, I quite like my sport, uh -huh. so I, I did that for a while. And sadly, you know, in Scotland, the commercial radio scene isn't—I uh, wouldn't say—lively. There's not enough money in it, so that went by the wayside. That was Talk Sport that opened up a station, so I worked for them for a while. Uh, and as I had the name drop, I think my best interview was with Rod Stewart. He's a big football fan, so we managed yes. to get him on the show That's and interviewed Rod Stewart on his way to Hamden on the mobile phone. Uh so <laughs> these are the. These are things, but that media journey that I was on, some people make it and I've got some very good, well, I don't, I'm not as friendly with them now, but, you know, uh, I was relatively friendly with David Walliams. Uh, I remember going for a drink with David Walliams and his Little Britain tour when it came to, to Glasgow. Uh -huh. And people like Mackenzie Crook went on to become very successful with The Office and Pirates of the Caribbean. Yep. Uh, I think I shared a stage with Sasha Baron Cohen down in London. We did a big sketch show in, in London talk of London and it was all these famous celebs and I was there as well but for every one person that makes it there's a hundred of us a thousand of us that don't make it Nikki so my sort of media journey that sort of journey just fizzled out a little bit and whiskey found me well you know it depends what you mean by make it really I mean I'm sure there's plenty of those people who are who are not having a great time now and you're working for the Glengoyne Distillery so to, to me you have made it Gordon Oh, that's brilliant. I know, fantastic. That's a great... You know, you, you're absolutely right, because um, it's a it's a very difficult world and not many people maintain a, a career at the high end of showbiz. Um, but when they hear that I 
I'm lucky enough to travel to Stockholm or to Finland and to down to the southern part of Spain to see the casket and built or doing whiskey shows in The Hague or Germany, you know, and it's all on the company credit card. It's, 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 it's a nice feeling and even people that I know are in very nice showbiz positions, it's, it's a gig they wouldn't mind, put it that way. Yeah, for sure. I think there's plenty of people who wouldn't mind your job in general, but um, I think there's not many who could do it though. I mean, I think you, you, you've, you're saying you've got quite a love of history. How, how do you think that's grown at Glengoyne then and what have you been doing at the distillery to bring it to life? Bring the history to life, I mean. It's a really good point. Nikki, and I didn't think I really had it. And there's a manual that's behind me in a drawer right behind me. It's got the Glengoyne training manual, which just gives all the bullet points. And there's a little section on the history. And I would say one of my transformative moments was reading the little, I think it was two or three pages of the history of Glengoyne and a wider history of the, the whiskey world. And it's a document I have to help enlarge shortly. I really suddenly, bing, it's almost a light bulb going off. I love Edinburgh University, for example, I studied classical literature, believe it or not, for two years. And I love all those old, you know, Aeschylus and Euripides. And I did philosophy and the history of Western ideas, uh, European ideas. So I loved all the history. But I forgot about it. And it just really uh, came to life. And I thought, well, who, um, where did this drink come from? Where did the distillery come from? And, and that's what led me on the journey. Um, and if I had to name drop again, just come to my mind, I took round as on, on tour the wonderful actress, Glenn Close, um, wow. who many of you might remember from Fatal Attraction. There's, and, there's uh, no forgetting Glenn Close, I don't think. <laughs> no, not for any rabbit owners out there. And, um, and, and um, Cruella Deville as well. She's And I took her round and I never knew it was her, actually. She was at, over here filming The Wife. Um, an Oscar-nominated film, I think. Wonderful, you've not seen it, you must. And I didn't realise it was her till the end of the tour. And she asked me, who invented whiskey? Who came up with this idea? And I was like, if Glenn Close asked you that, you really need to know the answer. So I really did even more reading and, and, and started to bring out little um, stories on tour. And um, shortly thereafter, getting the job of the experiential ambassador, my first job was to create a new experience at Glengoy, which would be the first... I think in about 10 years, and it's called the storytelling experience. And although I said I did the, did the, the Edinburgh Fringe show when it was the Victorian era, this was to, to look at the entire history of Glengoyne and try and bring it to life and try and then create it as a, a an experience that people can come along and take part in and then listen to and enjoy. Uh, so that's where the history has led to. But I used to love just throwing in little facts on tour and seeing if they would if it would work. Um, and if you let me, for example, at the fermentation, you take people into the upper turn room and at Glengoyne, the six lovely wooden washbacks with the liquid, the sugary liquid from the, the barley that's been ground down has, uh, has gets brought through it and you add yeast to it. And I would just love doing a little history of yeast and see if that was uh, of interest to people. And if it wasn't, I would not use it in the in the talks. And if it did get a bit of interest, uh, I, would, I would put it in. So... Like a stand-up comedy show, just putting in the bits and trying it yep. out on your audience each time. I'm interested in the history of yeast. Go on, tell me. You. you might be the only... No, you're not. But not. <laughs> yeah, you would say, you know, yeast, you would say that water and barley were like the Lennon and McCartney of whiskey. You know, they're the big stars. Uh, yeast is kind of like Ringo. 
Ringo star of the show. You know, and nobody really thinks about Ringo when you think the Beatles. It's all about Lennon, McCartney, Water and Barley, but yeast is so interesting and um, it's been making alcohol since before humans were on the planet. Uh, but we never knew it existed. And in 1803, the Institut de France issued a proclamation for anyone in the scientific community to explain what was going on with fermentation. They knew it occurred, they could make it happen, but they didn't know why or how it was working. Um, and the only person that could maybe have told them in 1803 was Lavoisier, a very famous French chemist who was guillotined along with the rest of the scientific community in the French terror. So it took until the mid-1850s for Louis Pasteur to realise that there are actually little microorganisms that uh, feed on sugar and kick out ethanol and alcohol. Um, and really, so the knowledge of yeast has only been here since the 1850s, 1860s. Um, so that when does when does uh, when when do the monks come in? They, that was before then, wasn't it? That's right. The monks come in well before uh, Pasteur and, and and fermentation. So the the monks really, I love all this. What I really gets excited about history is I love the transmission of knowledge. You know, where did knowledge come from? Uh, even this morning, I was just reading about the first mobile phone. I think it was our smartphone, nineteen ninety four. Look at our smartphones now in 2021. Uh, within th less than 30 years, the technology has boomed. And it was the same in uh, sort of medieval Europe. The technology of distillation had sort of come out of ancient Greece and Rome uh, and, and Mesopotamia and was picked up by the Arabs of the Islamic Golden Age, the 7th, the 8th, the 9th century AD. And they really took the the uh, technology and perfected it. They put a worm tub onto these stills, these alembics, to make the condensation process even more uh, effective. And it was these monks that you mentioned, these European monks coming from the West, interacting with the the Moors and the uh, of Spain and the Muslims in Salerno and these medical cities like Syracuse and Sicily, uh, that picked up the knowledge and brought it back to. Uh, Scotland to Ireland and eventually these monks wouldn't put grapes to make spirit brandy. They would eventually put beer into these stills and that would produce the, the clear spirit that we now put into barrels and mature it and call it whiskey. So but they, were they using amazing. yeast though? Natural yeast, yes. They were so, using and, and... natural yeast and, and actually um, if you even take it further back you can there's a, there's a beer that has been recreated called a mastication beer. And in the early uh, civilizations of Central America, the locals would chew berries and I mash up I was about to say that doesn't sound mouth. quite as delicious as it could be. <laughs> <laughs> no. but, you, that, but by chewing the berries and putting the grains, it wasn't so much grains in Central America, it was more berries and grapes. They would chew them in the mouth first, then spit them into vats. And that's how they worked out that you'd get alcohol because the yeast in your mouth would create the fermentation. So we have known about fermentation, but just couldn't scientifically explain it until Louis Pasteur. But it is amazing. Um, and I'm still reading about it, the transmission of knowledge from the East to the West. It's, it's, it's uh, really quite something. And even when I went on holiday two years ago, when we still could have holidays, I went to Palma, Mallorca. I um, said to my family, um, we were living out with Palma, I said, how would you like to go to a day trip to Palma? 
and they're all quite keen. What they didn't know, I was trying to find a 13th century alchemist who was one of the pioneers of distillation uh, called uh, Raymond Lull, L-U-L-L, -L, and there was a statue of him somewhere in Parma. So my mission wasn't to go and get ice creams and, and it was to find the statue of Raymond Lull, um, <laughs> which I did. If you know Parma, Mallorca, it's just opposite the marina in the middle of a roundabout. So I had to cross two lanes of uh, road and get my wife to take a photograph of me, waving, saying, here he is, it's Raymond Lull. Anyway, <laughs> that's what some people, you know, some people would start turning off now. But um, if you like that sort of stuff, these are the pioneers that grasped the separation of liquids through uh, vaporisation. And that's where we can really chart the modern story of Scotch whisky. Amazing. Well, uh, I mean, it, that's a bit about the mastication. I mean, that's just... They must have, I mean, going back that far, they must have thought it was, you know, some kind of magic, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Or uh, I suppose if they're monks, then, you know, something that's come from God, maybe, I suppose. Yeah, well, the, the natural phenomenon, there was animals getting drunk on berries that fall from trees, naturally, and it would uh, ferment and turn into alcohol. So our early ancestors obviously saw this and... Um, it didn't take long for them to recreate what happened in nature. And I think one of the first substances that was had its genome sequenced was uh, barley and grains. It's quite a simple process. And I think we can, around about 8,000, 9,000 years BC, just after the second ice age, there was a big massive one and it warmed up and then it got cold again. But about 8,000 years BC, th there's evidence of domestication of cereals. They're now putting crops in the ground. And if, like me, you're thinking, why do you do that? Is it to eat or is it to make crops that you can then chew down and make into alcohol? And I think probably it was the latter as alcohol really pushed people from hunter-gathering to crop... To sitting around the fireside having a few beers. Yes. <laughs> so I think you can quite make a very good argument to say that alcohol really pushed the uh, process of evolution of the human species. Or has that been too big? Has that been too grandiose? <laughs> <laughs> well, evolution is a is a strong word, but yeah, I do, I do think it certainly has an influence on us. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So yeah, and and you know, certainly alcohol has been around. That beer, you know, rice wines, eight thousand years BC, seven thousand years BC. So the evidence of distilled liquids um, is controversial, but. They believe there's been stone clay vessels that look quite similar to condensing uh, stills, very small ones, around about 3,000, 3,500 BC. Potential. So it goes back a very, not whiskey, just distilled spirits or perfumes or embalming. Yeah, yeah. But you know, that's, and then you get onto the, but yeast was there. So yeast is all around us. So although it took us thousands of years to get the technology of the stills, the actual raw ingredients of cereals and, and, and raw wild yeast and water, that's what we make our whiskey from to this very day, they were all there in ancient times. Um, it's just that to, to make a... I just don't uh, quite know what to do with it at that point. They're just experimenting for so, so long. Yeah. So Maybe. that journey's wonderful. So it's, it's just trying to deliver that journey in a little bit more of a fun way and bring another little avenues you can go up and have a bit of a laugh and talk about trips to Parma and bring in, you know. <laughs> so that's 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 what I was doing to try and um, bring this to life and then thankfully uh, the, 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 the company I worked for thought there was a, a, a job in this. Well I, I think um, it's so nice to hear um, 
a distillery embracing um, fun. You know, it's nice to hear them embracing that. So tell us about the five different families that have owned the distillery then and how is how have they affected the business and how have they affected the whiskey as well? Well, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. And that's really at the heart of this storytelling experience. And that was a wonderful, you know, almost day one was right. What we're dealing with. We know it starts in 1833. We know it starts with our founding father of Glengoyne's called George Connell. So I knew that. And I knew the current owners, of course, <laughs> the Russell family. Uh, we operate under Ian McLeod Distillers. So that's between 1833 and 2020, or 2019 I started, uh, almost 200 years. So just dove straight in there. It was a wonderful um, six months. And I'm still learning, I have to say, Nicky. But the first family, you're right enough, the Connell family. And they got £10 to get a licence to distill uh, in the foot of Dumgoyne Hill, which is a volcanic plug. And he called his farm, because he was a farmer, that's virtually all distillers were farmers in those days, yeah. Burnfoot Farm Distillery. And in the course of my research, I worked out that old George, because we always referred to him as old George, uh, old George was 27 <laughs> when he got his licence in 1833, so I had to reassess uh, George Connell. And I, and I found out that actually uh, by 1840, George had six children and was married. So. Uh, we believe his father and his grandfather were doing illicit distillation on the hills in the campses behind the current distillery but George went legal in 1833 probably because his family uh, you know were, were getting bigger and bigger and also um, there was money to be made in Glasgow Glasgow was beginning to really boom as a city and the demand was there and to properly meet that demand I think going legal would uh, made a lot more sense and trying to put a tin can in your back and run the gauntlet at, at night. So we, we believe George did have a knowledge of maturation. Um, he was very much the farmer. Uh, but, you, you know, according to certain experts, the first written reference to maturation was 1827. So again, okay. as I mentioned earlier on about smartphone technology booming in 30 years, when maturation, that knowledge, if you put spirit into wood and good wood, you'll get even better liquid. I would imagine that knowledge would start to boom around the various distilleries and all this of grapevines of, of distillers up and down the country. So we think George would have known a little bit about maturation and uh, his grandfather, his father, would not have time to mature because they were illegal. So George could do it better than his family. But really what George brings to it, number one family, is he brings the physical location of Glengoyne, called in those days Burnfoot Farm. It's a perfect location. But George moves off in 1852 and a second family called the McClellans move in and John McClellan I found him in Bathgate and I believe the only distillery at that time was Glen Mavis now closed so John wasn't a farmer very much a whiskey man through and through so he took it on from George uh, it's still by the ordnance survey standards says it's a a building in middling repair so we're still talking about a very small operation um small time small uh, you know, family. So not a big, this is not the ushers we're talking about. This is not, you know, uh, the, the big Chivas brothers yet. Yeah. Um, so still small scale. And John McClellan, we don't know too much about his tenure, but we know he died in 1867. His son takes over the distillery. And one of the big wow moments for me uncovering the story of Glengoyne was a little uh, image somebody had digitised years ago. And it was in one of the Glengoyne files and I clicked it, no name on it, and it brought us the first pictorial image 
of the Burnfoot Farm Distillery and it was a business card by Archibald G. McClellan with a little uh, presented by dot 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 so it was a business card that he signed and handed it over so he was very much a vic modern Victorian using modern marketing methods going into Glasgow handing his card around and on his business card the image of uh, the Burnfoot Farm Distillery has got I've counted them 11 wooden casks in front of the distillery so he's telling the world that I make whiskey but I also put it into wood remember in those days there was no rules some people sold it fresh from the still others huh mellowed it and matured it in wood and it was up to the customer up to the consumer but there's Archibald saying look at my picture uh, I, I do it in a cask maturation so Archibald um, probably really moved on the story of maturation but again it was a very small time the railways hadn't arrived at Glengoyne yet he sadly dies of tuberculosis as many people did uh, in those days age 34 in 1876 and the third and most influential family take over. They are the Lang brothers. And they really make the distillery into what it is to this day, I would say, in 1876. And, and the Lang brothers, well, we brought out a whiskey at Glengoyne, I think it's now two years ago, the Legacy Series. Uh, it's just a special and limited edition series of whiskies. In chapter one, celebrated the manager who was brought in by the Lang brothers, Cochrane Cartwright, um, who we believed slowed the stills down. George, Connell and even McClellan's probably had a touch of the old moonshiners, but now the Langs pumped in a lot of money and they could slow the operation down. And what they had, uh, even more than a very clever distillery manager, they also had a business that imported spirits from all over Europe and they brought in sherry from Spain, uh, brandy as well from France and these casks were being landed in Glasgow and bottled and by 1876 the Trossachs railway line was going from Glasgow up to Aberfoyle right in front of Glengoyne distillery or Burnfoot farm as it was in those days and so unlike the last two occupants of the distillery the third family had casks in abundance and they could put it onto a train and get it there in two hours and get the finished products back to Glasgow. So it really was a proper Victorian uh, industrialised distillery with proper sherry cask maturation. And that's what do Legacy think, Do you think it was a bit of a virtuous circle in that respect? In that, Do you think that the whisky industry encouraged train lines to come and train lines um train lines coming in cottage whiskey to be sold or or I mean what was the main reason do you think for the train lines starting to expand across Scotland I mean again Britain was at the the epicenter of of technology we were you know the British Empire so this locomotive technology again uh, when Stevenson and his rocket went from Darlington to Stockport um, this was like the Elon Musk of his generation, you know, yeah. that you just, you had to get to the next step and see where you could take it. And of course, um, by the middle of the Victorian era, there was money in tourism. People wanted yeah, to travel. Of course. Of People course. wanted to get into the country. So that would drive a lot of the um, desire to get these railways built. And yes, right there, the whiskey industry, especially in the, in the countryside, would really take advantage of these distilleries. And by the 1890s, of course, uh, up in Speyside, 
the 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 well, between eighteen sixty three when it opens up in the eighteen nineties, the train lines revolutionised whisky coming out of Speyside, because um, coal was cheaper to get in. So overnight, the the Speyside distilleries stopped being smoky. You didn't need to cut peat and burn the peat under the barley to dry. You could bring in coal quick. So uh, Speyside. There's one example of how trains affected the whisky industry. Speyside whiskies were, were mostly all like Isla. <laughs> until the trains arrived. And then overnight, there was, there was hardly smoke to be found up in Speyside. And at um, Glengoyne, I don't think the Langs would have touched the distillery. The Lang Brothers' operation was in Glasgow. And if anyone's listening and knows Glasgow, they, they had a church in Oswald Street, which is between the Clyde and the big Radisson Blue Hotel. It's now an NCP car park. <laughs> And there was a church I know there. exactly where you are. <laughs> <Do> you <know? laughs> and that was the Langs. I had a church um, on my research. By the way, there was two churches in Oswald Street, and I got mixed up. The church on the corner of Oswald Street, which I thought was the Langs, was actually a zoo, um, and there was a lion in the top floor. But that was a that, that takes you down. Wow. It took a week to work that one out, and then so so the Langs would not have touched uh, Glengoyne if it had been uh, not connected to the railways. So yes. We owe, I think, our existence um, to the railway lines as much as the Speyside ones do. So the Lang brothers brought that maturation, brought slow distillation, and as I said, they bought a hotshot uh, distillery manager, Cochrane Cartwright, that I've mentioned, and rumours never went away that Cochrane was the illegitimate son of the uh, Lang brothers' father. Hugh Lang was the patriarch. And uh, Hugh Lang owned a bar in the Broomielaw. He owned a couple of bars in Argyle Street and Buchanan Street. And uh, we think there's a very good ch chance that he brought his illegitimate son to become the manager of Glengoyne and work alongside his half-brothers. Uh, but that there's nothing written down. In those days, you would never write mm, such things down. Um, and a little postscript to the story of Cochrane Cartwright was sadly in October 28th, 1899. Saturday afternoon, Cochrane Cartwright was found dead, floating in the distillery dam. And um, a mystery surrounds exactly whether it was suicide, whether the family that he believed he belonged to never never admitted that he was their son, or whether he'd been drinking too much and accidentally toppled down into the dam. We do not know, but we do believe that his ghost still inhabits <laughs> the manager's house. And there are one or two tour guides that do not like to go upstairs in the manager's house, which is where Cochrane lived, uh, because one or two things that go bump in the night. So he is our ghost. And the Langs held on to the distillery till 1965, when finally uh, the third generation of Langs did not have the deep pockets, in their words, to break America. In the 1960s, the money to be made from whiskey really was not in this country. The big money was in the States and the Langs did not have the money to break America. So they went to another family and this is their, our fourth family, we're called the Robertson family. And the Robertson family at that time, uh, they, were, they were down to three generations later. They had started also around about the same time as the Langs, uh, Robertson and Baxters in the late 1880s, early 1890s. Three generations on in the 1960s, there was three sisters left um, and the Langs approached the three Robertson sisters to take over Glengoyne, which they did. And they now had Highland Park, McAllen, Cutty Sark, Famous Grouse and now Glengoyne, 
under the Robertson uh, brand. And they brought in a very famous merchant banker called Morgan Grenfell to sort out the financials. And he suggested that they get a holding company uh, for all the distilleries to go under and they can then um, create a trust, a charitable trust. It's still go with the Robertson Trust. It's a wonderful organisation for charitable giving. Uh, but the holding company, Morgan Grenfell, asked the ladies, what would you call it? And they said, well, could we call it after a holiday home? That we used to holiday in Berwickshire or Dumfrieshire, uh, we call it Edrington, and that company was born. Uh, and of course, you'll know what Edrington is the the great owners of Macallan, and they then closed uh, the distillery down for a year. A million pound investment between '65 and '66, and this is where the story we believe the last flavour change happens in their story. Day one of the reopening of Glengoyne Distillery. Edrington made the decision to bring in a second spirit still. For those of you who are listening will know your whiskey, there's usually one still to do the initial distillation. You've got your beer in maturation, uh, sorry, in fermentation, and you distill it the first time. And then you do a second distillation. And generally it's one distillation in one still, and the second distillation in one still. But Edrington brought in a second spirit still. So you divide the first distillation into two and do a simultaneous second distillation. Now this was revolutionary. We don't think, I've got no evidence of this happening anywhere else in the industry. And this was to maximise copper contact. We were already were running very slow stills. So the vapour was just, just getting over the line arm and no more. But now, if you did the second distillation to smaller stills, maximum copper contact, lot sweeter, lot fruitier. And that, we believe, was the last flavour change of the spirit in Glengoyne's history. It was 1966 on reopening. And the Edrington Group held on to, 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 to Glengoyne. And their biggest, I would think, their biggest contribution, and I've spoken to one or two people from Edrington, their biggest contribution, I think, to our story comes in the late 70s, early 80s, when the Consejo de Regulador de Jerez, which is easy for me to say, um, the governing body of uh, Hereth and the sherry makers down in the sherry triangle uh, now decided that the sherry casks for a, for a, over a hundred years that had been sent from Spain to, to England and Scotland were now going to be forbidden. The transportation casks, as they were called, were now going to be uh, stopped and the Spanish would bottle sherry in Spain and then send the bottles to Britain, which meant there would be no casks getting sent to Britain. And as I said, even back in the Langs days, they emptied the casks in Glasgow and sent the casks up to Glengoyne to be filled. Uh, that was not going to happen. What was the reasoning behind that? Why did they? Why was it suddenly forbidden? I, I, I believe it had been sort of building up for a while. Um, firstly, it was to do with quality. The Spanish just like we have in the modern Scottish uh, whisky rules to this day, you're not allowed to take a, a barrel of whisky out of Scotland and bottle it abroad. That simply is forbidden uh, because it cannot control its quality. And it was the same with the Spaniard, Spaniards in the late 70s, early 80s. They wanted to control the quality by making sure that the sherry uh, created in the Hereth region is bottled uh, in Hereth and then sent around the world. They can control the quality and secondly, jobs for the locals. So that all conspired in the 1980s, if you remember when tastes were changing. 
the consumer was moving to clear spirits, to vodkas and gins and um, I don't know, you were drinking, Nikki, was that Malibu and drinking? <laughs> In the 1980s, I think I might have been offered a lemonade about once a month as a treat. <laughs> well, I had my hair down to my shoulders, sh shoulder pads, you know, about three inches wider than my shoulders. And I was drinking a drink, I think it was called Bazique. I have no idea what it was, mm -hmm. but it made me look good. I, I, so people <laughs> were turning away from, from whiskey. Whiskey was seen as a bit of an old man's drink. Especially the big sherried whiskies, very out of fashion. Uh, and in the 1980s, about 40 distilleries closed, big, huge whiskey locks. No one wanted the stuff. Uh, everybody was getting into the, the, the fizzy drinks and the cider and black and all that stuff. So, um, these casks being prevented. Well, do, do you think one was a result of the other? In well, the, it, happened, the... it happened at the same time, Nikki, and yes. So, a lot of distilleries thought, well, do we need these casks? Because nobody's really wanting that style of whiskey. So we'll either, we can put it into bourbon barrels. They're cheaper, 10 times cheaper. And uh, it gives you that more refreshing, cleaner, uh, more tropical notes that people seem to be wanting in their, their new sort of craze of drinks. Not many people went down to Spain and said to local craftsmen, could you make these transportation casks? Uh, because that's what our industry is built on. And Edrington... What they brought to the story is that they went down there in 1982 and then spoke to people like uh, the Tavaza um, Cooperage and said, could you make these transportation casks made of European oak, seasoned in sherry for about two years and sent to Scotland? And they protected the sherry casks. And I think that really is what Edrington brought to the the story as the fourth family, effectively. How, how did they? How did Eddington convince this governing body then? I mean, yes, the governing body had the laws, so you cannot uh, transport sherry from Hereth to Scotland. These are specifically. Oh, I see. I see. So originally, the cast used to come with the, the yes. with the contents inside, and Correct. Eddington went to them and said, "How about you empty the cast and just send us the cast, please? That would be great." Or just recreate the casks. Yes. What was amazing was, you know, even if you. Why, why do we have sherry? Why this, you know, obsession with with sherry and casks? And very early on, and I, I love all that Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama and all these huge explorers and Magellan that circumnavigated the globe, 1522, and their liquid that was in these wooden barrels, it would change on these sea crossings. And people started to realise that maturation was a wonderful thing in, in casks. And just through process of elimination. If a barrel had held sherry, then it just made the liquid that make, we make in Scotland, it just brought it alive. And that's really why those transportation casks arriving in, 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 in Britain, I think I read, I think it was 1872 was the high point for sherry cask importation to the UK. So Britain was awash with empty sherry casks and the Scottish whiskey people just worked out these were wonderful for maturation, but when they stopped coming in the early 1980s, that was a bit of a disaster. So we had to have them made specially for us um, in Spain and then have them seasoned in sherry. We don't own the sherry. It's in there for two years, take it back out and then send us the empty cask that has been seasoned in sherry. And not many people went down that, that route uh, of these casks being recreated. Most people decided just to get into bourbon, and I think at the moment 90-odd percent of the whiskey being matured in Scotland right now is in bourbon barrels. It's wonderful. 
Um, 98% uh, did you say? About 90%. 90% of all the sherry, I'm sure of all the whiskey maturing is in bourbon barrels. You're talking 10, 12% maturing in sherry casks. They are quite rare, uh, these sherry casks. And um, I'm sure I can get the exact figure there, but Edrington... That's fascinating. So so sherry must be... Sherry must be, you know, something to really aspire to then. I mean, if that's the, you know, if, well, do, do people foresee it that way? Do people see it as, you know, a sherry cask being um, something I, special? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all to do with your own palate. Because a lovely whiskey here that I've got that's been matured in bourbon barrels. But um, it was just a different style of whiskey. And it depends what you like. And the, the, the whiskey that's matured in bourbon barrels... It's lovely. It is more refreshing, more front of palate. Uh, the, the sherry, a bit richer, darker and spicier. Your traditional Christmas cake. So it really is horses for courses, as they say. But um, that was a style that Glengoyne and, of course, Edrington were doing it on behalf of Macallan, really. Because that is the Macallan signature, is the sherry cask maturation. And Glengoyne was part of that stable. So they... Um, Really I'm su I'm surprised as well. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm surprised no. as well what you were saying about um, uh, they made a, a a million pound investment. What did you say? That was 1964. Yes, 1965. Stroke six. Yeah. That yes. must have been. I mean, that's a lot of money back then. A yes. lot of money. Well, tell me all that. Tell me what else they did in as in. Yes, as far, you know. It's, it's a complete rebuild and if you come to Glengoyne and I'd love you all to come uh, at some point in your, the future uh, most of the equipment you see dates from that refurbishment in 1965 stroke 66 they also if you come to our distillery you, you, you go to the visitor centre which overlooks the wonderful waterfall it was built in 1965 the waterfall was built Sorry, the visitor centre that overlooks oh, okay. Sorry. the waterfall <laughs> we've got a lovely building uh, where we welcome visitors so it was built in that refurbishment of the 1966, as was the complete rejig of the stills and the still house. Uh, the building was there, but the, everything was rebuilt. So it was a massive undertaking. And it really shows you how important it felt Glengoyne was as part of the Edrington stable. And it really was seen as the high-end uh, stable mate of their portfolio in Glengoyne. Uh, but yeah, it was a massive investment. And... Um, that's really only been eclipsed by the current owners, who are the Russell family. And what surprised me is you have asked a question about three days ago. I sort of kept them talking about the five families. <laughs> the, <laughs> the five families. This is the only night and day podcast you've probably been. <laughs> the, the, the fifth family, um, the Russell family, who took over in 2003, what again surprised me when I did my research was at that point, 85% of the spirit produced at Glengoyne was going to blends. It was getting blended away, swapped with other things. 15% was getting put into single malt. So when people think, I've not really heard of Glengoyne as much as, say, Macallan. Well, A, we have under a million litres a year output, but B, up until 2003, only 15% was getting put into bottles and labelled as Glengoyne single malt. Now, that's not a lot. I see, I see, okay. And so what the current family really did was, A, not change a thing. So they just, you know, no, no, no changes since 1965 in that spirit um, stills and how we produce our liquid. Uh, but what they did do was lay more single malt down for Glengoyne. 
So uh, it doubled in 2006, then doubled again in 2009, and I think it's doubled. So 80% now has been laid down for Glengoyne single malt. Uh, so it's completely changed. But to do that, you need more casks, you need more warehousing. Uh, so yeah, modern warehouses were built at a price of a few million, I can tell you. Uh, and these sherry casks, a thousand pounds a piece, they've got to be purchased if you're going to lay a lot of single malt down. So the Russell family have invested three times more, I believe, than Edrington uh, did uh, and, and, and brought the single malt story to the table. So really, it's a small question, but that's five families. And I hope that's not too long. <laughs> no, no, it's not too long. Um, you kind of passed over how... Archie McClellan. Yes. Archibald. Yes. Arch Archibald McClellan. Archie's friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm his friend now. Yes. Um, he died of TP TB in nineteen in sorry eighteen seventy six age seventy four, and then the Lang brothers took over. What? How did that? What happened with that transition there? Yes, I did pass over it quite quickly, but um, again, when I did the Edinburgh Fringe Show in twenty eighteen, I didn't know this detail, uh, but when you delve a little deeper into the land registry office uh, and work out. Yes, I thought that the McClellans were outright owners of the distillery. On Archibald's death in 1876, it turns out he was the proprietor, but not the owner. George Connell, the first uh, owner, had kept the lease. I, I didn't realise that. I thought proprietor meant leaseholder. And, no. So on Archibald's death, the lease should have reverted to George Connell, who could sell to the Langs. But for some reason, George Connell does not sell directly to the Langs. George Connell sells the distillery to Archibald McClellan's wife for the equivalent of something like a thousand pounds on the morning of, I think it's something like October the 16th, 1876. In the afternoon, she sells it to the Langs for over five thousand pounds, which is about a quarter of a million in today's money. Wow. So we can't work out why George would do such a kind act to sell the distillery at about a fourth, a quarter of its value to her. And she then made a huge um, profit on it, which is Just wonderful. Just kindness, I guess, if she'd lost her husband when he was so yes. young. Yes. Hopefully. So whether George was a blood relative, I can't find out. Whether George just looked on them as family or uh, whether George was so grateful for what he'd done with the distillery and how he was being a modern Victorian and trying to do business cards and, and push his whiskey around. Maybe George saw him as a, a sort of father figure because Archibald's father had died earlier. And George lived to about his 80, so he's quite a character, George Connell, um, by having a, 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 a taken a hit of about, to this equivalent money, he took a hit of about £300,000. Maybe oh. he just made enough money already. Yeah. He did own a farm and he ended up, for those that know Scotland, he ended up living in Drimmon and his daughter owned the general mm. hardware shop in Balfron. So he'd obviously made money, set his daughter up and he was able to help out Archibald McClellan's widow who had two sons. So it was a wonderful act of ph philanthropy on the behalf of, of George Connell. But it's a wonderful story. I couldn't believe it. He sells it to her in the morning. She sells it in the afternoon to the Langs. Um, and what I did pass over was the Langs re renamed the distillery Glen Gwyn, not Burnfoot. So the name Glen Goyne only officially kicks in in the early 20th century. It was called Glen Gwyn. Although some people think the Clark had made a spelling mistake 
It was always meant to be called Glengoyne. Because <laughs> but Glengoyne means the Valley of the Wild Geese. So that's... Um, a, a t- uh, Glengoyne was a typo. I love history because you can always, you know, sell the story rather than the facts. We don't exactly know the facts. Uh, we know it was registered as Glengoyne. But it's a lovely story that the clerk got a typo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder if... Um... Well, I wonder if if George Connell and Archibald's widow were were maybe more than friends. What? <laughs> Should I, was, I cut this bit in the no, post edit? No, not at all. I, I, not, I, I was I was about to say, but he'd be about seventy five, seventy six. But then I think you know. Well, you, you see, know, you never know. They say. <laughs> I suppose, you know, just interesting that you would you probably wouldn't have found out what happened to her afterwards because you know you'd be following the route of the distillery, wouldn't you? You're not really following the route of where the money has gone that's been made from the sale the sale of the distillery. So you know you don't know what went. Do you know what happened to her afterwards? I, I don't. But what you're saying to me, Nikki, you're saying that if I can get funding to write a screenplay, we could, <laughs> we could maybe make a film out of this. I can I can see it's getting definitely all over this. Um, it's the next Outlander. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll, I'll, hush, hush. We'll keep that under wraps. That's, but no, it would be a great story. You know, going from um, literally, I've tried to work it. There was nothing there before George Connell. A strip of land, and it went from a strip of land where moonshine was made in the hills to um, this internationally renowned distillery with all this lovely award-winning single malt. But in the middle of it, you've got this, these, these various stories that interact with this building. Um, whether it's the Langs breaking America, or it's the Archibald McClellan's wife, destitute, facing ruin, as her husband died at age 34. And then suddenly a benefactor, George Connell, comes out of the woodwork and says, I'm going to sell you if you, you know, for a quarter of its value. But you must get a good deal from the Langs. My goodness, she did. So I think some, something's he's either a very very nice man or something's gone on there i think right I, I'll, I'll let you listen i hope he's just a nice man as yes. a nice story i think so, listeners so. should fill the blanks in and just try and work out what the story might be and if anyone's got a very good narrative i'll 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 i'll, I'll do the screenplay and i'll cut you in for 10 percent <laughs> make it five <laughs> you mentioned the legacy series, series earlier what's your favourite Glengoyne legacy malt and why can you give us the tasting notes as well yes yes because I've just recently brought out legacy 2 and the legacy 1 I mentioned chapter 1 was that it really was full of sherry casks to reflect Cochrane Cartwright to reflect the, you know, the Victorians bringing in the sherry casks legacy 2 celebrates the current family and it's uh, Leonard Russell and his father Peter Russell who bought the distillery in 2003 and this series celebrates the fact that they um, and it wasn't them that brought it in I had the story you know Robbie Hughes the distillery manager and Stuart Hendry had been approached by a company who had taken our whiskey you know new make spirit and matured yeah. it in bourbon barrels you, that's what happens in the industry. Behind closed doors, lots of swaps go on and people take our parcels of whiskey and do... Anyway, they brought it back and gave Robbie and Stuart a taste. They said, this is matured in bourbon. Your whiskey uh, matured in a bourbon barrel. Delicious. They showed it to Leonard and Peter. They agreed and they thought, well, let's just see if we can do something down the bourbon barrel route with Glengoyne. Never done before. And that was where the 12-year-old was born. Uh, the Glengoyne 12. Now, this Legacy Series Chapter 2 takes that story and then really takes it on about another 
70 80%. Legacy 2 is got 48% first fill bourbon cask matured whiskey. And then 12% uh -huh. first fill American oak sherry whiskey. So 60% of this whiskey is matured in American oak. And that American oak is what gives the flavour of, of coconut, of mango, um, mm. of uh, olive oil. It's a little lovely pineapple, very fresh, very juicy on the palate. And then um, a wee hint of cinnamon. There's about 5% of European oak in there. So there's a little nod to the past. Um, and then the rest of it's made up of refill casks as well. But the flavour for this comes from the American oak. And it is a lovely... Um, if anybody out there has ever had a... What you might remember as opal fruits. Are they called Starburst now? Uh, yeah, yeah. the yellow ones. They'll always be opal fruits. <laughs> that's right. There's some pineapples <laughs> and that kind of peachy notes as well. Um, just maybe even a wee bit of a melon in there. So that really fresh, just thinking of itself in a, in a lovely, you know, beach looking out into the, the blue Mediterranean. This whiskey would be a lovely accompaniment to that vista. So it really celebrates the, the, the legacy of Peter Russell and the, the Russell family who have maintained tradition, but accepted and, and, and had a little go at bringing bourbon barrel matured whiskey, which is blooming nice. So that has worked out very well for us. And those fans of Glengoyne, they might remember the 15. The Legacy 2 is the 15 then some. It's unchill filtered, 48% ABV, a real good, luscious, viscous mouthfeel at the same time as that freshness as well. So a lot going on in this whiskey. So I've been hearing things about this uh, teapot dram. What's that all about, Gordon? Oh, that's one of, I think one of the, getting to be one of the most iconic whiskies, special edition whiskies that Glengoyne produces. And it's a wonder, there's a wonderful story, um, if you permit me, Nikki. Yes, please do. Please do. <laughs> Behind the teapot dram. And it really refers to the, the, the days of yore when the dramming, occurred at the distillery. Now, those of you that don't know the dramming laws in the Scotch whisky industry, it really was a way of giving the workers free whisky. Uh, basically, it was in return for not pilfering it. So okay. the thought was, if you give them whisky, they will not steal it. Uh, I think the first evidence of this goes back to the 1780s. So it's been going for a very, very long time. And at Glengoyne, it was three drams a day you got. Wow. Uh, three fingers, roughly, was three, the measure. Three, three fingers each, so you're yep. talking nine fingers over a day. <laughs> yes! Well, the tolerance these people built up. Yeah, and this um, stories were told to us by Duncan McNichol, who's now retired, but he joined Glengoyne in 1977. So he's done about 42 years of service after retiring. He arrived as a young lad at Glengoyne and they were getting three drams a day. And... In his own words, where you know he just didn't have the stomach for it, he couldn't be drinking, as you said, nine fingers of whiskey every day, five days a week. So there was a teapot set up in the men's production office, and Duncan and his mates, the younger lads, would put the whiskey into the teapot. You never said no when you get given it. You put it into the teapot, and some of the older lads, some of the older men, I should say, um, that liked a dram or two, would um, drink their own ration, then go up stairs for a cup of tea. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the constitution <laughs> these people had built up over years was incredible. Uh, 
And the expert detail in this story is um, that not many people know, but I've spoke to Duncan, and you, if the teapot had whiskey in it, you put it on the window ledge. So when the workers were passing down the yard of Glengoyne, they look up at the window, teapot in window ledge meant whiskey. It meant they're going um, to have a good day. Yes. <laughs> and that story got to the ears of the powers that be at Glengoyne, of Leonard Russell, of Gordon Doctor, and they thought, my goodness, what must that teapot have tasted like all that single malt swilling around. So, yeah, about six years ago now, they decided to get five casks of single malt Glengoyne and put them together. No chill filter, no water, just combine them together, light the teapot and bottle it. And it's about 3,000 bottles in a run and it was an instant smash. You know, Was it good? Bottle. Did you taste oh, it? Absolutely delicious. <laughs> uh, we're now up at teapot, the batch is now batch seven, I think we're up at now. Brilliant. And batch eight's coming out this year. And it's just a, a huge success, built on a very um, well-known story in our in our archives, and our history of Glengoyne. We've known all about it, but it's lovely to see um, just get a taste of what that teapot must have been like. And my goodness, Nikki, it's all sherry casks. You know, just think of, I think the last one was three European oak sherry casks, two American oak sherry casks combined together. And it's like your really big hit of treacle and molasses and brown sugar and lovely spicy warm cloves. It's a it's a real big, big hit of um, Glengoyne sherry matured whiskey. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's just really tickles you to think of the, the guys that used to, do that every day of their working life. Yeah, and did the original teapot, did that have tea in it beforehand? I mean, are you, are you should you be dipping a, a bit of you know, your tea bag in your whiskey before <laughs> you drink it? Do should you dunk? I, yeah. I believe, I believe it was, it was a, quite a battered teapot. So yeah, it had to look quite battered. It had to look like it would hold tea. Um, but it, uh, no, there was a separate one for the whiskey. The guys didn't like to to mix too much. They didn't like to mix their tea and their whiskey. Because we thought it might be a very fancy copper tea. No, 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 absolutely not. It had to go under the guise of a teapot. So the managers wouldn't uh, wouldn't know. So finally then, tell us a little bit what about what you would like to see people who are new to whiskey um, do more of. What would what advice would you give to someone who would like to know more about whiskey? Yeah, I would... I, I, just... A, don't listen to podcasts like this. Don't be scared. <laughs> don't be scared of whiskey, and and certainly do not be cowed by the uh, sort of the academia side of things. And that you must do this, and you must. There's no rules. I, I would say just treat it like any other drink. Sometimes I think people come to it think you're going to offend the Scots if we put something in this whiskey. Uh, I must drink it neat. I think you know. Approach whiskey with a smile, and if you want to add um, water to it, please add water to it. If you want to add some ginger ale or soda, please make it a long drink. In this weather, we're coming into summer, make it a lovely long drink and just enjoy it, and it's it's there to be enjoyed. And if you know your chemistry, if the whiskey is too stingy, you're, it overrides your taste buds, and there's, there's other little receptors kick in that does not give you the flavour. So the whiskey's got to be a, a level that you find palatable and you don't need to think you have to drink it the way you think it should be drunk. Just enjoy whiskey any way you want to enjoy it. Thank you very much, Gordon. It was really nice to talk to you. Thanks for your time today. Not at all, Nicky. Thank you.
If you've enjoyed hearing from Gordon and would like to experience his plethora of props that go along with his fantastic chat, we're delighted to say you can now book a tour or a tasting from the 17th of May. Or why not sign up for one of his online tastings? Visit distillerytours.scot and click on the Book Now button on the Glengoyne listing to book. Distillerytours.scot has every whisky distillery visitor centre in one place. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram or sign up for our Distillery and Whiskey News monthly email to hear the podcast first at distillerytours.scot forward slash sign up. We're taking a break on the podcast in June, but we'll be back in July when we'll be speaking to Callum Lawson, venue manager of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society at Bath Street in Glasgow. We look forward to seeing you then.